Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? Eric Davies is one of the Toronto media's most sought-after experts when it comes to trees, urban forests, and ravine ecology. I've now come to recognize Eric's voice on the radio because on many occasions, my radio alarm has awakened me to Eric being interviewed by Matt Galloway on CBC's Metro Morning. Whether it is the plight of indigenous trees in our ravines or the propagation of resilient heritage trees to help mitigate climate change, Eric is the guy that media goes to for information and insight. So I thought listeners would be interested in Eric's thoughts on the potential of urban forests to help mitigate the impacts of climate change, as well as help regenerate our ecosystems. Eric is currently completing his PhD at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Forestry, and for the past four years has been coordinating the Toronto Ravine Revitalization Study, studying the ecology of the Don River Valley forest ecosystem and mapping the exponential spread of invasive tree species and their deleterious effects on ravine ecosystems. Rewilding North America's urban forests has always been Eric's passion. With a deep understanding of nature, Eric has been dedicating himself to forest health and ecosystem conservation for over 20 years, including establishing Ontario's first provincial park native tree nursery at Presque Isle in 1996. In 2016, Eric won the Toronto Botanical Gardens Aster Awards Rising Star Award. In today's interview, I will be talking to Eric about his thoughts on how forests can be an important part of how we will address the impacts of climate change and how he sees his role as someone on the front lines of environmental harm reduction, regeneration, and climate adaptation, and what advice he would have for someone setting out to make a difference. I hope you enjoy our podcast. Eric, thanks for making the time to do this podcast today. So why don't we start off by you talking about your passion for forest ecosystems and where that has led. Okay, th- thanks for having me, Craig. It's, uh, it's really nice to be here. Where I got started in the, the forest, I guess it was th- through my family. My, my dad uh, had done junior forest rangers. So ever since we were pretty young, we had, there's four, four kids and we were always told that we had to, you know, we'd be doing this and... So when I was 17, which is when you do it, I did uh, junior forest rangers and, and ended up going to the most northerly place in Ontario in Red Lake. Is this something you do in the summer? This is something you do in the yeah. summer. Yeah. In your 17th year. And uh, so I went to downtown Toronto and there was, you know, hundreds of junior forest rangers at Union Station and they had this big train. Does this still exist? Uh, it, uh, it exists in different iterations. Yeah. It, the program was canceled once and then they revived it and... Uh, it's been going on for quite a long time. That's you know, very probably, cool. Yeah, I wish, wish I'd known about that. Yeah. <laughs> that was my first kind of, I guess, uh, you know, formal introduction to forestry. I'd done a lot of canoeing with my dad and grandparents and, and that type of stuff. And so the getting on this train in, in Union Station with hundreds of other junior forest rangers and going 29 hours north through Ontario's forests up to Red Lake, which is the most northerly ranger station. It was a neat, right, uh, right. neat experience to see the province, which I hadn't really seen before, and uh, neat experience to, to work in the bush, right? And it was relatively simple stuff like cutting trails and... Uh, was it at that, that time in history, was it co-ed? No, it was, no, guys. Just guys. Guys, and okay. then there also had the girls' camps too. But they kept them separate. They, they kept them yeah. separate, yeah. For yeah. very good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right at that time, we wouldn't get any work done. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was a um, pretty cool thing to do. It was exciting. And my dad had done it, and uh, I'd always loved camping. And so that was a, that was a first experience with the trees. And, and I had always kind of wanted to uh, continue on that. So then I you know, went to Fleming College in Lindsay, Ontario for uh, ecosystem management, which was, you know, looking back on where I've kind of 
yeah, after I did Fleming College, I went to university at Trent and did an undergrad and then a master's doing this PhD now. But almost looking back, that experience at Fleming College um, where really, said, really got you interested in the academic side of things or the management or, side. Or maybe just even yeah. the forests. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I studied ecosystem management there, which, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was great, great, great time. Yeah. So after that, uh, uh, what led you into your graduate studies? Because you're just now graduating as a PhD. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to Fleming College for ecosystem management, really enjoyed it, had a great time. And then was told, you know, it, it was kind of clear that a lot of the jobs that were available then, as you would expect from a two-year college program, would be, uh, you know, kind of a, an entry-level position, which was really exciting. But it, I recognized that at that time that I might want to go a little beyond um, that level. So then got into the science and did the undergrad where I studied birds, went up to the Arctic and looked at birds. And I, then I did a master's again on birds. And... Had a lot of time with science, which I'm still doing now, but kind of almost in a way going full circle back to my initial interest of just ecosystem management. And so I spent a lot of time learning how ecosystems work, but in some ways are coming to realize now that kind of where I started with some of this really simple ecosystem management is, is almost so where you've ended up where, yeah, where, or where you're starting where, again yeah, from where now. Yeah, starting again yeah. from now. Yeah. You've spent the past few years uh, as part of your, your um, PhD studies studying the state of Toronto's ravine ecosystems. What do you think are some of the most promising policies, strategies, and technologies for helping us reduce the environmental harm we are causing and also help us repair the damage we've already caused? Yeah, that, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always neat when you spend a few years working on something because uh, when you go into something, you uh, you think you would know how to how to approach it and your, and your ideas change. And I, I guess the, the biggest thing that I've come to appreciate is that it's not as much of an ecological problem as it is a kind of societal thing. Like how do we, like we already know enough about science and, and forest science and ecological science really to, to do most of what would have to be done to remove invasive species and get the native ecosystems working again. But then how do you, how do you inspire the public to want to do it? And this is where, where, so, you know, when you're saying what are the most important things, um, you know, some of this high level stuff, like you hear about the new green deal. Yes. Now. Yes. And, uh, I, I had just seen an article, um, the recently, new green deal that the uh, American Democrats are talking about. That the American Democrats yeah. are talking about. I, I saw something last week that it's the most common or popular talked about policy in the English language now. So, you know, although it's kind of being revived in the States from the FDR era, uh, the new deal originally, it's, it's getting a lot of people excited. And, and I think, having having those kind of large policy initiatives that can help bring the uh, excitement to these issues is really important. And uh, so I, I would say kind of some of these high level things like government initiatives like that. And, you know, this goes back to that, to the original new deal um, of Franklin Roosevelt. And the most successful of those new deal initiatives was the civilian conservation corps where it was right they were <clears throat> he was putting people to work and one of the things they were going to go to work on was conserving nature conserving nature yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and out of all the bills that they 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 passed and, and many were good they I, I think you know i'm not not an expert of this but the the ccc the civilian conservation corps is, is regarded as maybe the most successful one and so you know the roosevelt's tree army it was like 2.6 million people that planted three billion trees and made all the state parks. And it's pretty incredible when you look at the legacy that had and how it still stands today and, you know, what can be done when you do have that kind of high level um, organizational structure. So I, I think in some ways that would be the, you know, that kind of high level initiatives, but then on the ground, um, one thing we've been promoting is using modern ecological frameworks. Uh, the, the most common one is called ecological integrity and this is kind of like a building code for biodiversity. In building and development, there are codes that you, you have to follow if you're building a building. But with ecosystems, they've really only emerged in the past couple decades. And because ecosystems differ all over the world, getting something that can be nimble and effective uh, has finally arrived in what they call ecological integrity. So, that, you know, this, 
that, that's another thing I think would be really important is starting to utilize these frameworks that are, are, are out there. Well, talk a little bit more about those frameworks because are they going to be frameworks that um, people without a science degree or a biology degree can get their heads around? Or more importantly, can the people that make political decisions and cast policy easily understand it? Yeah, yeah, they, they can. And the um, one example that many people would probably be familiar with is the C-choice cards. It's a ranking system. They have numerous different ones, but it, it's a way of color coding. Use what they call a stoplight system of red is bad, right. yellow is, is moderate, and green is good. And you can rank seafood in terms of sustainability. Right, right. And the nice thing is, so you don't have to be an expert, yeah. you know, fisheries biologist. You can just, when you go out to a restaurant, the restaurant can only sell sea choice food. So then therefore, you know, you're going to establishments that do that. And the ecological integrity thing has um, used this stoplight system, you know, just almost like a building code. It's, it's a very broad framework that allows you to look at all different aspects of the ecosystem. And then you can summarize those metrics into easily to understand major metrics that can be depicted with a stoplight system. And who's doing that now? Like, I, I'm not hearing about this from municipal politicians to any large degree, not hearing it from certainly not the provincial politicians, given that we've flipped over to a conservative government. Yeah. Uh, and at a, at a national level, is it happening there? Yeah, so a lot of this started at Parks Canada at the federal level yeah. in 2001, I think it was. And the national parks, is we'd all appreciate highly valuable they were established because of their ecological value right so a lot of ecosystem management and restoration initially kind of starts in these places of high value and then at the provincial level i think in 2006 they, they started to use that to manage uh, provincial parks and i think now in the municipal level it just historically hasn't been a place where people have thought that you would find nature or thought that a major mandate or theme for urban governments would be the management of nature. So now it's al it's almost like the the, the third wave of, of where and that that's that is maybe where the discussion of urban forests is relevant. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think I know in the community that um, I'm part of, which is uh, sustainable design and sustainable urbanism, urban forests are a big hot topic right now because of their power to do so many positive things, starting with shading buildings, yeah. um, uh, managing stormwater, uh, cooling the buildings around them, and so forth. I mean, that's the um, societal benefits, but then mm -hmm. the nature benefits are huge too. I mean, they yeah. support all sorts of bird species, insect species, and yeah. so forth. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think a lot of those, uh, you know, a couple things that come to mind is that we're, we're often surprised at how valuable these urban ecosystems are for these things like carbon sequestration and shading. And then even, you know, I've been into nature for a long time. I was, one of the first studies I did in Toronto was a study of migratory birds in downtown Toronto in native and non-native trees. And went out to all the, the ornithologists around Toronto, got some great help from the Toronto uh, Ornithological Club. And uh, when we were initially putting these studies together, we didn't really think we'd find too many birds in downtown Toronto. And then when we set up this experiment... And what, what count is downtown Toronto? Uh, so this was actually right at uh, Bathurst and Bloor. Okay. Where, you know, so, so Midtown... Near, near the University yeah. of Toronto yep. area. Yep. Yeah. And so we basically went around, we found areas where uh, Norway, non-native yep. Nora maple, yep. was growing right next to a native silver maple. And it was really surprising to find how many migratory birds were down there. So on some of these days, there's a, you know, bird lists are really popular. Now there's one called Ontario birds and you get these updates. And I was finding ab about almost as many species of birds in downtown Toronto on the same day that they were finding in Point Pelee. So in, in the same sort of area of, well, of, of observation? Um, more just, you know, so when spring migration comes, everyone yeah. goes to Point Pelee to see the birds. Right. But I was finding you can basically go downtown Toronto. <laughs> see as many. Find, you know, all, Not you, the same species, but well, no, a, a lot of different species. Uh, actually, yeah. almost most of the same species. Really? There's a few you, you won't get, yeah. you know, the kind of more southern species yeah. and some of the rare species. Point Pelee is a remarkable area for bird watching. But I think only recently people have started to... Uh, look in the urban areas for nature and increasingly finding 
more. There's another local birder, uh, quite uh, well-known, Norm Murr, and he, he puts out his postings from the Toronto Island quite frequently, and he'll go over there on any given day and find a remarkable diversity of birds. So um, nature is important, obviously, for the ecosystem services we get. It's important for the biodiversity that is here and passes through, and then surprisingly is just a value for the people. And, you know, reconnecting with nature and everyone's doing forest bathing and a de-stressor. And so, um, but as we've talked about before, nature isn't nature when we're throwing all these non-indigenous species in that sometimes don't fit within the ecosystem. So they don't provide the same kind of habitat, for example, for insects um, or for birds. Uh, so w what's, what's that balance look like in Toronto right now? Um, well, uh, or is it too broad a question to answer? No, yeah, I, I actually just, so my PhD thesis was basically looking at biodiversity in native and non-native trees. And one of the first things I did was I, I evaluated the available tree list for North America. There's 30 big cities and over 50% of the native trees in all cities in North America are, are now so rare that they're not showing up on urban tree inventories. So this is a real problem. It's a, it's a real problem, not just in Toronto, but everywhere. And it's not surprising because historically we, we actually wanted to select trees and plants that didn't have biodiversity. They were pest free because we, you know, we, this is the kind of the idea of, we didn't want pests. You yeah. know, this kind of goes back to the Rachel Carson idea of creating ecosystems that were kind of sterile. It's, it's sort of like first level thinking. They don't have pests. But yeah. the second level thinking is, well, what does that mean? Well, they sterilize the ecosystem. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't think that far along. Yeah. And, and so now we don't call them pests. We call them biodiversity. And, you know, this is what Rachel Carson, so now, you know, not too long ago, pollinators would be regarded as pests. pests. Nice. You know, so now yeah. it's this transition where our initial goal was to have no pests or no biodiversity, and now it's shifted towards having biodiversity. So, which in a lot of ways might, might be a bit of, um, you know, a promising thing to think about that we, once we put our minds to something, we can we were, did a really good job at making urban areas pest-free. We can do a really good uh, job at bringing them back. The theme of this podcast, uh, of course, is how we're going to deal with the impacts of climate change yeah. and, and repair the damage. Maybe you could talk a bit about um, how urban forests um, have the potential to help cities deal with the fast-emerging challenges and impacts of climate change. What do they do to really address some of those challenges? Well, you know, one thing is kind of how much forest do you have? So, so, you know, some, some urban areas don't have a lot of forest. Some areas have a lot like Toronto, 17% of the entire area of Toronto is just a ravine ecosystem, which is, which is remarkable. So Toronto probably has a surprisingly high ability to manage their forest in terms of climate change, because it's literally 17%, which just incidentally is that kind of magic number for how much of the global habitats do we have to protect people have often said 17%. Sorry, what is the 17% measure of? 17% has been a number that people have bandied around in terms of how much habitat we should protect. So for instance, Canada oh, now... Oh, the percentage of actual yeah. territory so, that should be forest or natural ecosystem. Yeah, protected. Yeah. So I think, you know, Canada has an objective to protect 17%. And, and uh, so... 17% of Toronto is ravines alone. That doesn't even include all the, the urban trees and the streets. So places like Toronto would have a, a huge opportunity to, by managing their forests for things like biodiversity and climate adaptation and climate change, have, have a fairly significant impact. Even, you know, beyond things like sequestering carbon, creating uh, functional ecosystems, like, re, re, you know, almost using it as a test ground to figure out how to then move beyond the city which is kind of funny, you know, when you think about it, because we're so close to these forests, like the University of Toronto Faculty of Forestry has been here for 112 years, and we can easily go out here and conduct experiments in the ravines that we could then bring beyond the GTA. So it probably has a lot of uh, benefits, both in terms of the, the, the carbon, but just in terms of a test ground for innovation. And also potentially maintaining coherent existing ecosystems in a healthy way, as healthy yeah. as, as possible, yeah. given the fact that it's in the middle of a city. Yeah. yeah. What about environmental regeneration? Resilience uh, and adaptation are not enough, are they? Uh, how, how, how will we repair the environmental damage that has already been caused by climate change? 
Well, you know, when you, uh, I guess I would almost say restoration, you know, if you think of resilience and adaptation, those concepts can perform, you know, things are resilient relative to how many pieces are in the puzzle, right? So an ecosystem that is complete and healthy is resilient because what makes it resilient are things like redundancy, right? So if you only have one tree, if you get a tree pest, you don't have trees, but if you have more than one tree, it's resilient because of its diversity. So right now they're not resilient. Our forests are not resilient. So to, to get them more resilient and to allow them to be more adaptive, the one thing would be this mass scale, large restoration of, of the ecosystems. And what would that look like? Expand on that. So the two things would be removal of invasive species and then restoration of native species. I mean, you could even just say it more almost, and it's not just species, it's almost ecosystems, right? Because you go into a lot of areas when, when, I mean, so Australia, classically, the United Nations has always said that the number one threat to biodiversity on a global scale is habitat loss. So if you go clear cut a forest, you don't have any habitat. The number two thing is invasive species. Because you get an invasive species like the Nora maple that's in the Toronto ravines, and it kills the, the soil organisms and creates a, a toxic green desert. And this is actually, if you look at the Toronto ravines... So it's actually <clears throat> secreting chemicals that are killing the, the uh, yeah, and they're just, uh, organisms, by the, the biodiversity in the soil itself? Yeah, it's called allelopathy. And, you know, Norway maple, a, a lot of these, you know, even that kind of concept is relatively new. They know things like garlic mustard and, uh, you know, herbaceous plant is allelopathic. And they, the more they discover this, the more they realize that invasive plants, one of the mechanisms they have for being invasive is to change the soil chemistry. And <clears throat> often this, uh, you know, part of the, you know, allelopathy is killing off these beneficial soil fungi, which they're now increasingly appreciating are important for not only the flow of nutrients, but also communication amongst the plants. The sort of forest internet under the soil. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Australia recently just changed their number one threat to biodiversity from habitat loss to invasive species. And if you look at the Toronto ravines, I mean, we'd have habitat loss in the sense of like buildings, on the edges would infringe, but really we don't have people in the ravines cutting the trees down in the core. The number one threat would be invasive species. So the number one, you know, one thing to do is go in there and in a, in a mathematical way, remove these invasive species in, in a way that optimizes the regeneration of native species, which is the second main thing to do is restore the native species of, of plants. And what about the other pressure on ecosystems that we're going to see with climate change, which is shifting climate zones. So as the atmosphere warms, the growing periods change, um, and that changes north to south, but also with elevation as well. So how do we think about that? That's, you know, that's, that's, that's the, that could be a podcast <coughs> itself. Could, right? yeah. <laughs> we got to come back and talk about just that. Well, it's a really exciting one. It's it's one of those ones that um, you uh, you got a big problem. You're you're the only person that's going to say it's really exciting. Okay, <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's like uh, it's the other way of saying it's really terrifying. It's really terrifying but terrifying, there's some yeah. really interesting <laughs> things going on yeah. there. <laughs> you know, I think anytime you have a big problem, everyone wants to solve it with a silver bullet, right? And he, humans are have been historically pretty good at this. You know, coming up with vaccinations and, and these things. And uh, my my hunch is that there won't be a lot of silver bullets. You know, one is this idea of assisted migration that we can, as long as we just bring species up from the South, everything's going to be okay. And I think that'll certainly be an important thing to consider. But what we need to do again is almost, and it kind of goes back to that other question, is making sure our ecosystems are healthy enough that they can adapt to this climate change. And uh, so that would be one thing. And, and the other thing is this, you know, Heritage Street project that, we, that we've... Uh, we, we've collaborated on a bit and out of all the things that will change mapping out your large trees that have been around for hundreds of years these things have kind of proven the test of time in terms of their resiliency to changing climates because if you find a 200 year old tree and you look at the history of of weather over 200 years we've gone through long stretches of droughts and long stretches of cold and, and um hail and uh Floods, floods, and, and ice storms, and, and insect outbreaks, and, insects outbreaks yeah. and, and so forth. That's right. And, and so these yeah. things are living testaments to climate yeah. change. 
And because they've been able to weather those and still stand the test of time, although there's no certain things, that, that would, would be a good example of something that would have some promise looking forward to if we want to create a resilient you know, ecosystem that can be uh, resist some of this change would be um, using these as a seed source. So why don't you talk a little bit about the Heritage Tree Project? Like, okay. just yeah, um, it, it will give people a sense of of the trajectory. So, the original idea, and this is something that Eric and I um, started talking about a few years ago, was to build resilience in existing ecosystems. Is not to bring in new species, but to look at existing species that potentially had DNA that was by their history of being there so long, probably had a greater probability of being more resilient to various climatic forces. Yeah. And that was the start. So talk yeah. a little bit about what, the, what, what you would do to, to get that heritage tree, as we called it. You know, it's funny because a lot of this started with just the fact that big trees are so beautiful and important biologically to what's here right now. Yeah. So, so a little bit of biophilia entered biophilia, into the picture. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and this is fairly ubiquitous amongst people. You show them a big tree, it doesn't matter where you're from or what age group. They're, it's, they're so profound and beautiful that uh, you love them. And as, a, as an ecologist and a forester, the, their value is just unparalleled in the ecosystem. That's where all the biodiversity is and that's where the beauty is. And, and then by almost in no way, so we started mapping these trees and in forestry, the kind of age-old uh, way of growing trees is using what they call plus trees. So foresters would go out for the past hundreds of years. They find these big trees that are beautiful, uh, typically for wood quality, and they collect those seeds and propagate them, right? So this, this heritage tree thing was looking around Toronto. And, you know, the city of Toronto has got a lot of great initiatives for, for instance, we want to get 40% canopy cover. And, you know, Satori you know, during his, you know, campaign elections, he said, well, we really need to step up tree planting and we need to plant a hundred thousand trees a year. And that was music to my ears. And then you have groups like the Toronto Parks and Trees Foundation, which is saying, well, let's plant native trees. And you got leaf, you got all these great groups. But when you go to buy native trees, there's not a place to really buy them. You, you can't go to your local nursery and find local provenance trees. So we thought, well, there's 73 native trees in Toronto. And right now you can't, you can't buy any, any native trees of local provenance. So by using these heritage trees as a living seed bank um, was a kind of, you know, it's expanded into that. And then how can we propagate these at a, at a, at a level that could fulfill some of these large demands for the urban tree planting? And I think we're just, uh, just starting to get there. What do you think is the best way to drive large-scale change and large-scale action, the kind needed to move us in the right direction in solving climate change yep. or, the, or the issues around climate change? In a nutshell, it's influential people stepping forward. I'm at UT Faculty of Forestry. My heroes are my professors, my supervisors, but then the emeritus professors. And you, you, know, you look at these types of people who know science, and you're like, these are the people that you would need to get to actually do it. But these are not the people that are going to make it happen. They might be the most important for doing it, but you really need people like, um, like Drake, you know? So he's just got a new house he's building. It looks really cool. In his neighborhood, there's probably all kinds of amazing big trees. You know, what if, what if we went up to his neighborhood and found a big tree and called it the Drake tree? Right. And then he started promoting, <laughs> promoting using these beautiful the trees. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's something you should probably do next we week. Could, yeah, we can <laughs> reach out to him. Right. Yeah. If he's listening, yeah. uh, think about that. Because, you know, the, you know, these people are the kind of, the, the, you know, people who are, are, have a large, um, you know, social role in the world, you know, like musicians and sports people. They're admired by so many people. Uh, and I, I think now, you know, you look around at, at social changes happening and a lot of it is actually coming from people that are, that are influential and then they're kind of, you know, going out and taking a stand and standing up for something exciting. And so I think that, you know, we're, we're so lucky in Toronto that we have all these remarkable people. Like we have, like I recently watching the Raptors and I'm just getting into basketball, but it's so fascinating. You got, you got the Raptors and the Leafs and all these people that, well, it's the Toronto Maple Leafs. Right. They, they'd, they'd be the perfect they, team. They'd be perfect. And, <laughs> and, right. I, and I think, you know, 
Um, you know, so, and we have the Toronto Blue Jays, right? And so they're using these totems, the Blue Jays and the Maple Leaf. And, and I, and I think they, they're probably using them because they do love nature, right? They love, they love Maple Leafs, they love Blue Jays. And so what if we were to get a few of these people to step forward and say, let's restore Toronto's ecosystems to their former glory and do it not just for nature, not just for biodiversity, but for people so people can go enjoy them. And um, so that, that's actually, uh, in, in some ways, it's, it's counterintuitive because people think of policy change coming from government and, uh, yep. you know, assistant deputy ministers bring it to deputy ministers and so forth. But this is actually directly to the public, motivating the public where a lot of the public is. Actually, where the elites aren't necessarily just there. Yeah. So that's, it's a possible strategy for getting to lots of people. That's, yeah. that's very smart. Lately, you've been exploring blockchain as a tool for driving and effectively accounting for environmental repair and remediation. Can you talk more about this? Well, I can a little bit. It's one of those things, that, and I saw a quote about this, that when the internet came out, you didn't have to explain how the internet worked to explain its, its value. And blockchain is a little similar. I, I'm not a real computer expert. So when I first heard of this, I, I, I kind of glanced over the option because I thought it was too technical. So blockchain is a way to track the provenance and history of any product. The easy example in terms of nature is if you just look at organic food, how do you know it's organic and who grew it? So you can use a blockchain to track the provenance of that food to ensure that it really is organic. And so this is a, this is a huge issue, you know, like sustainable seafood, 30% of the sustainable seafood in the world is, is not sustainable, yeah. not sustainable. Yeah. organic food. There was something on CBC marketplace last year going around to the markets. It's not all organic, right? So this blockchain is a revolutionary idea that all major grocery chains are going, oils going on there. Everything is going on there. Cause it, it can track things. And, and, and the funny thing about this, I think, and I'm just learning because this is a, it's an emerging topic, but when, when you go to someone in business and, and you kind of say, uh, this is a way to be more transparent, people might almost think, well, I don't, how would that benefit me? But the reality is, is that having a transparent supply chain really helps you do better business and, and it helps you create a better product. So there are companies emerging now. There's a company called Providence out of the UK. And you can, I mean, you've got these companies starting up and just go look, look at what some of these people are doing. And what they're doing is they're, they're allowing new markets to emerge. Things like fair trade and things like organic, things like local. So that is one really exciting thing about the blockchain is by providing a mechanism for validating the provenance and history of things, you can start markets like that. And the other really exciting thing is called smart contracts, which blockchain can be used to enact contracts amongst multiple parties. So say you had something like, you know, we're talking about urban, urban uh, forests and climate change. And if you have, say, a development and, and part of the stipulation is to develop the site and then put a nice forest back in 10 years, that's a big gap between the start and the end of that. So a smart contract can be utilized to... Demonstrate that you've done it. To demonstrate yeah. that you've done it, yeah. yeah. And, and I can also imagine that a smart contracting blockchain would be good for the emerging mass timber industry. Yeah. One of the, as an architect uh, and someone that's fascinated and exploring all the avenues around mass timber, one of the big problems is if you get mass timber, and by the way, mass timber is lumber that's been glued or nailed or dowelled together to make structural um, components. But if it comes from trees that have been cut unsustainably, like clear cut, it's terrible yeah. because clear cutting releases carbon from the soil and it's worse for the environment than if you built with concrete or steel. But if it's from a sustainably managed forest, then where there's um, selective cuttings being made and it's being made to enhance the quality of the, uh, the forest ecosystem in and entrain more carbon and so forth, then it's really good. Yeah. But how do you know where it's come from? The provenance is just what someone's written on a piece of paper. Yeah. And, you know, people being people, somewhere along the line, that might just slip. Mm -hmm. yep. So with blockchain, where it locks down each of those transitions, then you can know what's going on. Right there, that, that just opens up 
you know, even more markets because, you know, once, once someone knows that it actually is really true, then people are willing to, to, to buy it. Yeah. That's, um, it's really exciting. Generalizing from your own experience, what do you think are the biggest barriers to dealing with the realities of climate change? Um, for me, and it's that old kind of expression, think globally, act locally. I'm really concerned about climate change. And, um, when you start to drill into it at the global level, it's, it's frightening. And I, I think it, uh, by focusing only on the global and not acting locally, you, it's like, it's almost like paralysis of analysis, right? We get so scared and we don't think at the enormity, at the enormity of it. And so I think a lot of people have this conception that to make change, the only thing you could do is to try to encourage your government to sign the Paris Accord or something. Whereas really, there's so many things we can do locally. And once you start acting locally, uh, it's that chain reaction. So what do we really need to do? We need to act more local, plant a heritage tree in your front yard, learn about biodiversity, teach other people about biodiversity. And hopefully by acting locally, then it, then it almost then climbs back up the ladder. Right. To right. the higher, you know, cause so, once, so, so, so you're getting that continuum from local, um, immediate scale to global scale. Yeah. It, it almost makes you wonder when people are voting, maybe some people don't vote because they don't really see the use of it. And, and if a lot of just the common people were getting engaged in nature, they'd, they'd appreciate how exciting and important it is. And then if they, if they love it more locally, then they could maybe appreciate why it would be important regionally, provincially, you know, nationally. And, uh, yeah. So focusing on solving the local issues and, extrapolating from there to the global. What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking of ourselves? Almost the same answer to the previous question about being more local. And I, I had actually, you know, your, your podcast here, the, the three main things, harm reduction, regeneration, and adaptation. It's almost wondering how can you do those locally, right? So harm reduction. Well, if we go remove invasive species that are harming our ecosystem, we're going to do better. And then once we realize how to reduce harm locally, when we travel to a different area or think broadly, we're going to want to reduce harm because we, we understand what reducing harm, the benefits of right. it. The immediate, the immediate uh, ability to do so. And, you know, humans always discount the future. Yeah. They want immediate, you know, things. And, and so, and then again, regeneration. Well, we could regenerate our, our, our local ecosystems. The ravines are a remarkable ecosystem. And if you haven't gone to explore them, do it soon. Go see the migratory birds out there because it will inspire you to want to discover more. And if we can reduce harm and regenerate those ecosystems, then it's, it's almost like that chain reaction. And then adaptation is a pretty exciting one. And I think all these things in, in a place like Toronto it's actually easier to do this in an urban area just because the, the intellectual capital, there's so many people. Like if, if you want to know, you know, adaptation, for instance, a lot of these concepts are biological concepts, but they're performed at elite levels now by architects. And so if you want to fix an, an ecosystem, you can find actually a lot of skills amongst architects and designers. And yeah, I think uh, applying those things locally would be, is, is, is what's missing from the, the discussion on climate change. Is there anyone missing from the discussion? Like who's missing from mm -hmm. the discussion? Are there, are there people that should be playing a more important role in these conversations that aren't? I think so for sure. The obvious one for me as an ecologist is ecologists. You know, I always think about ecosystems. Foresters think about forest health, ecosystem health. And then you're in Toronto and you go, how many hospitals do we have and doctors for people? It's really, it's so important human health that we've got hospitals all over. We've got specialty But always clinics. for dealing with what happens after you don't take care of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, yeah. And I guess when we also would have gyms for preventative and restorative. And so the, the same kind of thing, if we, if we want to tackle human health, you need a lot of medical health professionals. If we want to tackle climate change, we need a lot of ecological professionals. Fortunately, you know, a place like Toronto has the oldest faculty of forestry in the country, 112 years, right? So, but people might overlook, you know, ecologists and not just foresters, ecologists of all types. So for instance, people who study local pollinators, 
they, they, they discovered a new species of bee in Toronto a few years ago. Yeah, I heard you know, that. Right, you know, and it's so wonderful. It, it's wonderful. Yeah. And so to bring more ecologists to the table, it's almost, it's almost, almost too obvious, right? But maybe it's so obvious that people have just overlooked it. And, and also, I think ecologists typically are quite insular, right? They're not really talking with architects too much. Or, you, or anyone else. Or anyone right? else. They're talking I mean, within their academic community, primarily. Yeah. And this is probably something that is a... I mean, people get siloed. So is this a, an opportunity for getting this kind of thing into um, the early grades of the classroom? Yeah. So that people understand what the notion of ecology is about. That it's not a dry uh, academic subject. It's yeah. about what's happening in their backyard. Absolutely. So I've, I've been doing a bunch of work on this. Um, at, at UIT, we often have school kids that'll come through. And it's really, it's always interesting to just see how, how smart young kids are. You often forget. And working on this ravine project, we started working with the residents. And there was a couple, this one woman in particular, Kath, Catherine Burka, and Joan York and Shane Downworth Crompton. And a bunch of these people that live in these areas said, well, why don't we go to the schools? And so we started to go to the private schools because they're easy to work with. And we, for instance, started working with, uh, you know, Branksome Hall and York School and some of these, these schools that are right around the ravines. And it's just been an incredible experience for a few reasons. Number one, the kids love it. Kids love nature. The, the teachers really love it. And one thing that a teacher at York uh, School mentioned is that they want to actually now work with the faculty of forestry to help change their curriculum so they can teach more about biodiversity. Ah. And they said, actually, kids will grasp it more because right now, a lot of topics, examples they use in biology are, are agriculture, right? But kids aren't really seeing corn grow. But when you can go into your ravines and see how a tree grows or an oak tree goes. Yeah. So, yeah, we're working with about seven of these schools now and hoping to uh, try to figure out an easy way to bring this to a broader level. So right now we're, we've got, we have these little nurseries we've started, tree nursery boxes, and the kids collect acorns and we, we show them where these big heritage trees are. Well, there. in fact, that, that's interesting you should mention that because I saw an article about you, was it in the Toronto Star, about the box you'd done in front of your apartment. Okay, yeah. And what struck me as really interesting because I knew you had been doing these boxes yeah. was the reaction that the reporter had okay. was not so much about the ecological difference that was going to be coming out of it, yeah. but about the fact that everyone in the neighborhood became so passionate and interested yeah. and wanted to help. Yeah. And it's just dirt and some little acorns yeah. growing, yeah. but it wasn't just dirt. Yeah. It was this magical thing that had been created that was creating these heritage trees because these were similar yeah. seeds, right? From yeah. the large trees. And so all of a sudden the neighborhood that otherwise doesn't get together uh, around many other things other than I guess when they vote or that's about it really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, or maybe for their school boards, that yeah. kind of thing. But all of a sudden we're, was coming together to see what was going on and say, this is really exciting. How can we help? And I thought that was a really powerful message yeah. that this could be local, not local just in a city, but local in a, in a, in a block, in a neighborhood. Yeah. You know what? It's it's almost one of those things that was surprising, but not surprising because you know everyone deep down inside knows how good everybody is. Everyone's a good person, and in the busy world of Toronto, I mean, my my mom lives out west in Salt Spring Island, and when she comes here, you can't even get a block with her, right? Because it's it's such a big busy city, and to move efficiently through the city, right. you have to kind of <laughs> zone out and and just get the business done. But when you have something like yeah, tree nursery, it, it gives people an opportunity to pause and. Uh, and then almost rediscover the relationships with their neighbors and the trees. And it was, I actually found even one of my neighbors across the street, his son, who has a house a few doors up, has grown oaks himself from local trees. And so this was one of my own neighbors a few doors up who uh, who's basically did the same thing a long time ago. And and so he's coming and saying, look, this is, I did this before. This yeah. is what I learned from it. Yeah. That's yeah. very, very and, it, and it's really, uh, it's it's great. Yeah. This is, sounds so positive, mm -hmm. but you also said that climate change was something that really worried you. What what worries you most about our current situation? Um, you know, it's it's like uh, I love nature, and and they they often talk about, for instance, how kids a hundred years ago used to be able to recognize all these birds and now they don't know birds and they know all these corporate logos, you know, that same old story, nature deficit disorder. 
you can apply that to the, you know, humanity in general. You know, I think that, that, that troubles me, but I'm increasingly optimistic just because I see a real revival in nature, you know, at, at kind of all levels of society. It's, it's almost becoming cool again. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried about a lot of things, but I think I'm, I'm most worried about just the detachment of people from nature and uh, being being copacetic about having no nature mm-hmm. and almost wanting to create, you know, these, w- whenever you see a, a futuristic city design or something, historically, like the Jetsons, there, there were no trees, right? But increasingly, you look at what the developers are doing in Toronto and the designs are, half of the image is green. Are covered with trees. Covered with yeah. trees. So there does seem to be well, a... Well, sh- I, I think they're, they're picking up on, and, and my uh, colleagues that are f- uh, fellow architects and engineers um, are understanding now that biophilia is real, yeah. that human beings crave nature. Yeah. And that uh, uh, the developer wants to make their property development successful. And by covering it with trees or greenery, it improves the chances of people wanting to be there. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of simple. Yeah. It's taken a while for people to, to, to catch on. Uh, coming back to what concerns you, what gives you hope? What keeps you going when things are looking dark? Well, I mean, that's part of the fun about being an ecologist and a naturalist is just you, you can jump right into the ravines and, and lose yourself. I remember hearing that token, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I lo- there was a, you know, the guy who wrote The Hobbit and Lord, Lord of the, the Rings. Rings. Uh, a lot of his inspiration came from a tiny little woodlot in, in the downtown area of England he lived in. Oh, really? And so it is... Well, trees featured so hugely in his writing. Yeah. I mean, think of the ants. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can... I have, I have an oak tree in my backyard that looks like an ant. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they look like it could come alive any day yeah. and walk. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's something, you know, I, I love going to get lost in nature outside of the city, but increasingly, you know, working in the ravines, there's so many places you can go and forget you're in Toronto, which is pretty remarkable. It's almost like our own little Algonquin Park, you know, so you, you kind of have to pretend you're not in the city, but when you go in and you can't see the houses, you can relatively quickly disappear into a bit of a natural oasis that you're, uh, you're only really disturbed by the invasive species you see. And I think maybe the finding a solution for eradicating the invasive species might get people in, in the neighborhoods nearby motivated to better understand and be part of those, those spaces, those, those, uh, yeah, the, forests. In this, um, you know, this kind of concept of citizen science, which I'm sure, you know, you've heard of, and you can kind of extend this to citizen stewardship. And uh, so right now, rightfully so, in Toronto, it's, they don't really allow the public to go hog wild and remove invasive species, because if you don't know what you're doing, you could right. be pulling trillions or something. Right. But I, or I, an ironwood. I, or yeah, a butternut. Yeah, but it's something really beautiful. <laughs> so, you know, this is something that, you know, the city of Toronto... And conservation groups and everyone is really trying to figure out how can you make, again, these simple stewardship manuals. Yeah. And uh, so the city of Toronto has actually got a community stewardship program that's out in the ravines. And, and from what I gather, it's, it's almost kind of filled up, right? But there's, there's how many millions of people are in Toronto? They're, they're kind of discovering there could be hundreds of thousands of, of people that want to get engaged in nature and help out. And, you know, many hands makes late work. But, but they have to have a path. They have to have a path. And, um, you know, you look at allotment gardens, there's years long waiting Waiting lists just because people, people don't even really care what they're growing. They just want to grow it. Go out there and grow. And so going out and, you know, stewarding nature is, is, I I think, I think it's such a fun, exciting thing to do that that's a, you know, that brings a lot of optimism that if you can create mechanisms to get people engaged, then we're really cooking with gas, right? Because it's that population resource that we have. But if, if people enjoy doing the work, then it's a win-win. Right? Yeah, and certainly if you can connect doing good to enjoyment of your life, it's a much easier sell. Yeah, I mean, people immediately perk up their, their ears and, and listen for you know, how they can be part of it. What advice would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative that we've been talking about? And maintaining hope, I guess, at the same time. But. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, think globally, act locally. And I mean, the I think the easiest thing is kind of this heritage tree thing. Like go out, 
Walk out of your apartment or your house and go look for the biggest tree you can find. Maybe start inside on the Google map and just that exercise of looking for something beautiful and profound um, is an easy and exciting, it's, it's the adventure. It, it'll, it'll make you appreciate that the adventure can be exciting. And then when you, once you do find these beautiful trees, they, that can become an epicenter for not only ecological restoration, but kind of like you mentioned with the tree box, an, an epicenter for cultural animation. You know, people talk about animating space. And, I, and I, I've been thinking a lot lately about how when I go and map these heritage trees, I'm recording and measuring mostly biological metrics, like the height and the, and the width. And, but, and adding this data, but it would be remarkable if you could encourage people to add poems or, or art to the tree. And so... And is that also part of maintaining hope? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it, mate. Yeah. So that's a, a nice place to come to an end. And I'll ask one more question to wrap up our interview. Is there anything that you would like to ask of our listeners? What, what should they do? Anything you'd ask that they do? Um, get into nature. Yeah. You know, go, go find that tree. Join a nature club. Toronto has uh, the Toronto Ornithology Club, the Toronto Mycology Association, mushrooms. Right. And they're, I mean, it's funny because a lot of these places, up until quite recently, they were having a difficulty getting membership because most bird watchers were older and stuff, but there is a revival of, of, of nature. And so I think that would be, you know, something, I think it's an easy thing to do. It's almost, um, because it's good for the person who's doing it. And then hopefully if it's good for, if, if someone learns to love nature, then they'll be uh, more primed to help out the larger picture. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. It's been a real pleasure. Cheers. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.